I've been preaching from Colossians. Let's turn over to Colossians uh, chapter 2. And we've now had three services. This is the fourth one. And I'm just now getting into Colossians chapter 3. So uh, believe it or not, I've been running through this quickly. (laughs) I've spent a lot of time meditating in these scriptures. And I could have preached on this a lot more than what I did. But what I've already covered is based primarily on Colossians 1.27. That Christ, the mystery is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we've just been talking about what it means, what, how it would affect us if we really uh, acknowledged and then understood and assured our heart and got the full assurance of what it means to have Christ living on the inside of us. I don't think most of us really believe that or I mean, I guess we believe it. We acknowledge it, but we don't understand it. And on a practical basis, we don't really think about it. And hence, we do some things that if we were really thinking about Jesus being with us, most of us wouldn't do some of the things we do. We wouldn't watch some of the things we watch. We wouldn't say a lot of the things that we say. We wouldn't go places that we go. But the truth is that God is in us. And we need to get an awareness of that. And so we've been spending all of this time talking about that. So in chapter three, this is Colossians chapter three, verse one. Here is um, some more statements based on this mystery of Christ in us. And in the last part of chapter two, he was talking about, so don't go back to this Old Testament way of trying to serve God. In the Old Testament, it was how you approached God. You'll often hear people talk about going past the brazen altar and then into the holy place and then into the holy of holies and we want to enter into the holy of holies. And you'll hear songs talking about that. In the new covenant, we're already there. The veil has been rent and now God moved on the inside of us and we don't have to do all of these things. We don't have to observe all of the rituals and the laws that were given and commanded in the Old Testament. That's what he had just talked about in chapter two, the end of chapter two. So in verse uh, one of chapter three, it says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. You know, above and beneath are opposite directions. If you are really seeking God, you can't be seeking the things of this world at the same time. For a person to be just plugged into this world and excited about all of the things going on in this world, it means that your affection, your attention has to be focused on things here on the earth. And this is saying, set your affections, the next verse, verse two, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. This word set is talking about that you're the one that determines this. You're the one that controls where your affections are. And you know, there's a lot of things in scriptures that talk about this, but over in Matthew chapter six, it says, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Most people think that wherever your heart is, there's where your treasure will be. But in Matthew chapter six, it says, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be. You can actually direct your heart by what you put your money into. Some of you don't have that revelation. But that is an absolute truth. You know, if I was to get your wallet, if I was to grab your wallet or your purse and walk out that door with it, you know what? Your heart would go with me. (laughs) 
you would be thinking about that money and those credit cards and what's he going to do and where's he going to go and what's going to happen. You know what? You can actually put your heart in a certain direction. And if you start investing heavily in the things of God, you can move your heart in that direction. There's a lot of things you can do to set your heart on the things of God, but this is giving you a command. This is not a suggestion. It is a command to set your affections on things above. You know, here's what I wanted to use my uh, commentary that I wrote for this. I hope it's still there. There it is. So um, let me see if I can figure this out. (laughs) Here it is. Here's the Greek word. It's porneo that was translated, set your affection. It, It was used 39 times, I believe, in the New Testament. 34 of those times the apostle Paul used it. And it means to exercise the mind. That, in, that is, entertain or have a sentiment or opinion by implication to be mentally disposed more or less earnestly in a certain direction, intensively to interest oneself in with concern or, or, or obedience. So the reason I use this is to say that when we say set your affection, the word affection to many of us today is just talking about your feelings. But actually this word is describing your mental process. It's talking about setting your mind, focusing your attention. This same Greek word was used in Romans chapter eight, verse five, which says, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. That word that was translated mind in Romans chapter eight, verse five is this same Greek word. It was also used in Romans 14, six, which says, uh, he that regardeth the day regardeth it not unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. So that word regard is this same word. So when it's talking about setting your affection, it's talking about your mind, that with your mind, you have to be focused on the things of God. You know, this is really simple. And I know that most of us have heard this before, but brothers and sisters, there's not very many Christians who have set their affection their mind, their focus, their attention on the things of God. Now, in a sense, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the people who are more focused on God than others, because here we are on a Saturday morning and you're out here listening to somebody preach. I mean, you aren't your typical nod to God Sunday crowd. And yet most of us still are so preoccupied with the things of this world And these scriptures are saying, it's saying that we should seek things that are above. We ought to set our affection on God and on the things of God and not on the things of this earth. I don't think there's any of us that do this the way that we should. Most of us are way, way, way too involved and impacted in this world. Now, I'm not talking about going and living in a monastery and living totally separate, but you can be in the world without being of the world. You know, I've got a lot of teaching on this. I've got a series entitled Hardness of Heart, and I won't take time to teach that today, but if you hadn't got that, you ought to get it. And the scripture basically teaches that whatever you focus your attention on, or you could say whatever you set your affection on, your heart becomes sensitive to And whatever you neglect, 
your heart becomes hardened to. And the sad fact is that most of us are more uh, focused, set our attention on the things of this world than we do the things of God. And because of that, most of us have a hardened heart towards God. Most of us are more sensitive to what the doctor has to say than we are what the word of God has to say because we spend more time in the natural realm than we do in the supernatural realm. That's really simple, but it's absolutely true. And the antidote to this, you can't just pray it away or rebuke it. It has to be your focus. Just like these verses are saying, you have to set your affection. That's up to you. You know, if you were to diagram this uh, sentence the way we were taught to do in school where it has a subject and a verb and an object and all of these things, then you would be the understood subject of this sentence. You set your affection on things above. It's up to you. God has given you this command. He doesn't take you by the nose and just make you follow him. God doesn't force you to seek him. You have to choose to do this. And this word said, I won't take time to go in and read all that, but the word set here is the same word that we use when we talk about like concrete setting up. It's talking about you can become fixed, hardened in these things. David, one of the reasons that David was able to maintain his integrity when Saul was persecuting him and stuff is because he said in Psalms chapter 57, verse seven, he says, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praises unto your name. He had predetermined that he was going to seek God and he wasn't going to go another direction. His heart was fixed. And when he was in a situation where Saul came into a cave and all of his friends were telling him, now's the time, kill Saul, take the kingdom. And every single voice around him told him to go ahead and, and uh, promote himself. He couldn't do it. And Psalms chapter 57, if you read the subscript under the title, it says uh, it was written by David in when he was in the cave, when Saul came into the cave. This was the song that he wrote about that. And he said of himself that his heart was fixed. He had already predetermined that he would not be the one to bring down Saul. You have to do this with your heart. You have to set it on the things of God and not allow other things Uh, to occupy you. And brothers and sisters, it's just real simple. Most of us are more controlled by this world because we spend more time in this world, focused on the things of this world, thinking about that than we do the things of God. That's just super simple. You have to have somebody to help you to misunderstand what I'm saying. (laughs) But I'm telling you, this is a problem right here that most of us spend more time with our mindset on the things of this world than we do the things of God. If you would just do an inventory right now, how much time do you spend watching television every day? And I'm not talking about just Christian television, but how much time do you spend watching television versus studying, praying? And if you spend more time watching television than you do studying the word and praying, I guarantee you, then your heart is not set on things above, but it is set on things of this earth. I'm not saying that to condemn anybody. I'm just telling you that this is in violation of these scriptures. If we are risen with Christ, which the NIV translation of this says, since you are risen with Christ, it's really not a question. It is a fact that we have been risen with Christ. Therefore, we should seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. We should set our affection on things above and not 
on things of this earth. I tell you, the things of this earth are tempting. Especially when everybody around you is all into them and talking about this stuff. But it doesn't benefit you. Matter of fact, most of the stuff in this world is detrimental. It's, it's hazardous. It's hurtful to you. It hardens your heart towards God. It puts fear and doubt and unbelief. For Christians to watch stuff where people are committing adultery and they're lying and stealing and murder, and you do that for entertainment is detrimental to you. Did you hear me? I tell you, I feel like I'm spitting in the wind. I don't know very many Christians that will follow these instructions right here. In verse three, he says, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Boy, I could spend a lot of time on that. The scripture says we are dead to sin. It says we are dead to the law. We are dead to that former life. We literally ought to be just dead to this world and to all of the stuff. You know, it, it amazes me how Christians get into all of this stuff that the world gets into. I know some of you are going to think I went to meddling instead of preaching, but you know, there, there are Christians that get just as excited about the, the singer who is up there just promoting themselves and rapping and talking about killing cops and doing this. And Christians are just as excited about that as lost people. Shouldn't be that way. Man, Christians are so eager to find out what everybody's doing and if they've got a baby bump. And they, they want to hear what's happening, who's liking who and all of this stuff. That stuff is absolutely useless. And they're excited about this television show and who's, I, I've never watched this, all this stuff, so I may be saying it wrong, but who, the bachelor or the bachelorette and all this stuff and who the survival show and we're into all of this kind of stuff. And what does it matter? Who cares? I know some of you, well, I really like those things. Well, (laughs) you've got your attention set on things below. And I guarantee you, when you have cancer come knocking on your door, you're going to have to run to somebody else's house who's kept their mind stayed on God because you aren't going to have the power to be able to do this stuff. Man, we should be dead to this stuff. We ought to... Is what you're focused on or the things that you're occupying yourself with, is it going to change eternity? Is it going to change somebody's life? Is it going to make a difference? If it isn't, well, then you need to set some priorities in your life. You know, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, to lay aside the weight and the sin, which does so easily beset us. You know, you can do a lot of things that aren't sin, but they're weights. There's nothing wrong with sports. But if you are a sports fanatic that you know everything that there is to know and you know every batting average and every statistic and you can go back to 1953 and tell who won the World Series and who did this, I guarantee you, you're just about useless when it comes to spiritual things. It takes time to be able to do all of that stuff. It's not sin. There's nothing wrong with watching a game or doing something like that. But for you to be consumed, 
For you to be one of those that your wife becomes a football widow every time that the season starts because you're just sitting there fixated in front of the screen or when hunting season comes. I had a woman come to me one time and she says, pray for my husband. He's got PHS. And I thought, oh man, what is PHS? And she says, pre-hunting syndrome. He just sits on the deck and looks out into the woods. And she says, I just lose him for two or three months because of hunting season. You know what? There's nothing wrong with hunting. There's nothing wrong with liking sports and stuff, but everything should be done in moderation. And when you are so consumed with something that is going to pass away, your, your priorities are wrong. We ought to set our affections on the things of God. We ought to be dead to this world. It shouldn't dominate us. Amen or oh me. You know, in Jamie's family, when her parents were still alive, we would pay trivial pursuit. And you know what? I'm just useless. It's like I've lost 45 years of American culture. I didn't listen to Elvis. I didn't listen to the Beatles. I didn't do any of this stuff. I've been seeking God my whole life and I just put a priority. I don't think it's wrong for you to sing a Beatles song or anything. I don't think you're sinful. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm not against any of those things, but I'm saying I wasn't into this stuff the way that everybody else was. And so when we played Trivial Pursuit, I just sit there because I didn't know. I don't know about this band. I don't know about sports. I don't know about anything. And so I just sit there. And anyway, one time I was really feeling useless and I was saying, God, I'm going to get this next one. And I prayed and asked God for a word of knowledge. I said, I'm going to get this next question. And the question was what magazine debuted April the 1st, 1953, I think it was. And it's the only question I answered all night. It was Playboy. (laughs) And they said, oh yeah, we can tell you what you've been doing. But honest, it was a word of knowledge. That's the only way I was able to get it. I tell you what, I'm useless at all these games like that. I just don't know this stuff. I don't know actors. I don't know movies. I don't know any of this stuff. But you know what? I see people's lives changed and I see people healed and miracles happen. I'm not saying you got to live in a monastery, but I'm saying priorities. Most of us have put a greater priority. We have set our affection on things of this earth and most of you in here. And again, I know that this is the Saturday morning crowd. You're the cream of the crop. You're better than the average. And yet I would imagine that the majority of people in here know more about sports and more about movies and more about the current culture than we do the word of God. And hence the reason we have problems. I tell you, this is so simple. It's just simple. And yet it's amazing how people don't follow this. In verse four, it says, when Christ, who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. When Jesus comes and all of a sudden we are caught up into heaven, you know what? You aren't going to miss the fact, oh, I missed the world series. Don't come before the world series is over. All of these things that are so important about, you know, the foot, uh, the basketball tournament, whatever they call that, what do they call that? The final four. 
March Madness. If, if the Lord was to come back in the middle of March Madness right now, some people would be disappointed. <laughs> but I'm telling you, that's wrong. We ought to get to where, men, the things of God are what, you know, excites us and gets us excited. You ought to be as excited about God as you are about sports, as you are about movies and things like this. And sad to say, it's not that way with some people. In verse five, mortify. The word mortify means to put to death, to deaden yourself. We are supposed to mortify, therefore, because of all of these things, your members which are upon the earth. Mortify. We aren't supposed to indulge them. We aren't supposed to encourage them. You know, the Greeks, I've got this in my definition of, of this word mortify, but the Greeks used to say that it is as impossible to satisfy your physical, natural desires as it is to fill a bowl that has a hole in it. And that was a quotation by, I forgot who it was, but anyway, that was a saying. And it's absolutely true. The only way you can deal with this flesh and all of our desires is not to try and fulfill all of them, but you've got to mortify yourself. You've got to deny your flesh. You need to separate yourself and, and, and wean yourself off of this. You can become addicted to the things of God. It says that in Romans chapter 16. Submit yourself to those of the house of Stephanus, for they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. You can become addicted to God and you can become addicted to this world and get to where you just have to have all of the stuff of this world. It's not that God demands that you live this separated life for him to love you. God loves you. Whether you're into all of this stuff, he loves you. He is not mad at you. It's all by grace, but your heart will become sensitive to whatever you focus your attention upon. And if you are more sensitive to and dominated by the stuff of this world than you are by the things of God, it hinders you receiving from God. It doesn't hinder God giving, it hinders your receiving. So you still need to live a separated life. Some people can't put these two things together because I preach a lot on grace that God moves in your life completely independent of what you deserve. They think that therefore I can just go live like the devil. I can go do anything because man, God loves me. It's all by grace. Well, as far as God's concerned, he loves you regardless of what you're doing, but your heart is affected by what you set your affection upon. And you need to learn that even though God loves me and I could go do all kinds of things, and God would still love me and bless me to the degree that I'd allow it. It's just stupid for me to go out and start living in sin and start indulging myself because all of these things hinder me. They keep me from receiving from God and being as effective. So I need to mortify my members, which are upon the earth. And then he begins to list some of them. Fornication, which the word fornication just literally is referring to any type of sexual impurity. It includes homosexuality. It includes bestiality, incest, adultery. The word fornication is just all types of sexual impurity. You know, I'd like to just move on, but there's, again, so many Christians that think it's okay just to go out and do whatever. Do you know this also includes pornography? Matter of fact, one of the, uh, let me look at this. I need to make sure I'm correct. Hope my phone is still working. What verse was that? Verse five. 
I got so many footnotes, it takes me a while to get down there. So here is verse 5. I was going to look up the Greek word. Anybody have it? Here it is. It's pornea. It's the word we get pornography from is this word for fornication. And it says it alludes to any illicit sexual intercourse, including adultery, homosexuality, intercourse with a clothed relative or animals, as described in Leviticus 18. Our English word pornography comes from this, pornea, which means, um, and, and combined with graphe, or however you say that, it denotes a drawing. And anyway, this is... Uh, word that we get pornography from. So pornography is included in this um, fornication right here. And then uncleanness, I could spend a lot of time on that, but that's just talking about any act of unholiness. The opposite, the antithesis of this would be holiness. Inordinate affection is talking about excessive sexual drive. And this, of course, describes all kinds of sexual impurity. But did you know what? It could even apply to things within marriage. There is appropriate behavior inside of marriage. There are things that are appropriate ways to act and inappropriate ways to act. It's saying you need to mortify these desires. You don't need to just indulge your desires and do everything. You need to mortify these things. And evil concupiscence, the word concupiscence is talking about an uncontrolled, unrestrained desire or lust. You know, the scripture teaches that we're supposed to be passionate about things, but there is a, an appropriate passion. You aren't supposed to just indulge your emotions in everything. Some people think that as long as it's good stuff, it's okay to just be over the top. But no, the scripture teaches moderation. You need to control your attitudes. I'm not saying we all need to be Spock where you have no emotion, but we ought to at least incorporate a few of those things. You don't just let your emotions run wild, which our world today is basically saying that you shouldn't, uh, sub, um, what, is, what is that word? Suppress any of your emotions. You just need to let it out. You need to get it out and stuff. No, there's certain things that you ought to mortify. You ought to crucify and put it to death and not indulge those emotions. And it says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Boy, this is something that a lot of people today don't understand. But covetousness, desiring that that somebody else has is idolatry. There are millions of Christians that would never bow down to an idol and offer a sacrifice to it, but they will covet things that other people have and want it for themselves, And it's idolatry. Did you know going back to the Garden of Eden, this was actually the sin of Adam and Eve. They were told not to eat of this one tree and God didn't explain why. He just said that if you do it, you will die. And the serpent came along and made them covet something that they didn't have. They wanted more. They wanted what God had forbidden for them to have. It was idolatry. And they actually submitted themselves and said, we are God. We can make our own choices. Did you know that that's idolatry in America? We don't have idols and uh, altars all over the place. Like in Vietnam, when I was there, you drive down the road and see all of these shrines and idols and stuff. When I was in India, I saw all kinds of idols and things. America doesn't have those physical idols, but Americans worship what they don't have and covet all of this other stuff. All of our 
advertisement today is enticing people and thinking you need this. You've got to have the newest phone. You've got to have this. You've got to have all of these things. And it's covetousness and that's idolatry. Man, that's a strong statement, but I'm just reading scripture to you. It says we need to mortify these things. We need to put to death these lusts. You know, if most of us were to win the lottery, you know what most people would do with it? Most people right here in this room, you would go out and mortgage yourself up to your eyeballs. If you won $10 million, you'd spend it in a short period of time. You'd get a bigger house, a bigger car. You'd get the fancier cars. You'd have the uh, uh, tennis courts and you'd have an indoor swimming pool and you'd just do all of this stuff. My point is, what does it take for you to be content? Paul said in Philippians chapter four, I have learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. Most of the people, there's some people in here that yes, God wants to prosper you and you need to improve. But you know what? Most of the people in here, you are relatively good off compared to everybody else on the face of the earth. You are prosperous and stuff. And yet most of us are just lusting for more. If you had more money, you would go get you a bigger house, do more, more, more. When are you ever going to reach contentment? How many bedrooms do you have to have to sleep at night? (laughs) How big does your bathroom have to be for you to take care of business? Did you know Americans, if you go to other places, Ashley and Carly will verify this. They're from England. You know, most Americans' bathrooms are bigger than most people's bedrooms in England. I mean, man, we just, we just got to have more of all of this. When are we ever going to reach contentment? You know, 25 years ago, Jamie and I, we were going to put up a, a mobile home because that's all we could afford. And a guy says, you don't want a mobile home. And I said, we don't want one. But I said, that's what we can afford. And he built us a house for cost. And uh, we built a house for $60,000. And we still live in that house. Now, we've since expanded. And I mean, it's a great house. I love it. But you know what? I could now go out and I could buy a million-dollar house. I could do something. But I don't want it. I'm content where I am. I got a nice house. Why do we just have to always be lusting after something else? I tell you, I believe God's speaking to somebody here. This is not saying that God minds you having things and God doesn't mind you having nice things. God is El Shaddai, not El Chipo. But I'm saying you shouldn't be just constantly lusting for something more. We need to learn to be content. We need to quit being covetous. We need to learn to be satisfied. And I tell you, the uh, advertisements on TV and stuff today, they prey on covetousness. They create covetousness. They present something that you somehow are not living up to your potential if you don't buy their product. And they All of temptation preys on covetousness. If Adam and Eve would have been content, and if they would have said, look, we don't know why God told us not to eat of this tree. But man, we've got 10,000 trees to eat of. Who cares about this tree? I'm going to enjoy all of the other 10,000. If they would have just been content, did you know that this temptation would have been dead in the water? 
But the devil, there was only one thing in the universe that God told Adam and Eve not to focus on. And that's the very thing that they fixated and focused on. And they just had to have this tree. It came through covetousness, through a lack of contentment. Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever state. When you get content and you are just thankful for what you've got, it takes so much pressure off of you. There are some of you in here that are working two jobs. You are struggling and you know what? You're behind, not because you don't have a lot of money, but because you have mortgaged yourself up to the hilt and you are living beyond your means. You don't have to have a brand new $60,000 car. Now, again, if you've got the money, there's nothing wrong with you having that. I'm not saying that you have to live poor, but I'm saying if you are having to work an extra job and it's hurting your family and you don't have time and all of these things because you've got to have the brand new car, you could have gone out and bought the same kind of car, drive it off the lot and it'll lose $10,000 value. Buy it a week old and you just save $10,000, but no, you got to have the brand new car. You can go buy it on Craigslist and do things like this and you can start where you are and you can have a nice car and meet your needs and stuff, but we are just responding to this covetousness. You need to mortify this stuff and learn to live within your means. Now, if God increases your means, you can live in $2 million, $5 million house. Who cares? God's not worried about that. I'm not against anybody who's got great things, but I'm saying you shouldn't be covetous. You shouldn't be driven to it. You have to mortify these things. In verse six, it says, for which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Children of disobedience here isn't talking about disobedient believers. All of us are God's children, whether saved or unsaved or lost. This is talking about people who don't know the Lord and there's coming a day if they don't accept the Lord that God's wrath is going to come on people for these very things. Fornication, uh, lasciviousness, inordinate affection, idolatry, all of these kind of things. In, in verse 7, in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them, but now you also put off all of these. In other words, these things listed before are the obvious things. Now here's some things that may not be so obvious. It says, put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. You know, these are things that are acceptable sins. There's a lot of people that, there's a lot of Christians that are just angry. They're bitter. Malice means intent to hurt. There's people that hurt other people intentionally. The scripture is saying we need to mortify these. We need to put these things off. This is not becoming a Christian. Now, God loves us even if we have these things in our life. But I guarantee you, every time you yield yourself to these things, you yield yourself to Satan, who is the author of these things, and he gains inroad into your life, and it hinders you from receiving from God. We need to quit being angry. Amen. Some of you think, well, I was born this way. It's just my temperament. Well, you can be delivered of that demon. (laughs) Amen. That little book I gave away, Self-Centeredness, The Root of All Grief. I guarantee you, if you were to get that book and read it, you will be delivered of a temper or you'll either be mad at me. (laughs) But that will tell you what causes you 
to be angry. It's your own selfishness. It's not in your genes. It's not any of these other things. It's only Proverbs 13, 10, only by pride comes contention. The only thing that makes you angry is your self-centeredness. I know many of you don't agree with that. That's the reason you're angry, but you ought to get that little book and read it. It would help you. You need to put off anger, wrath, malice, intent to hurt, blasphemy, the things that we say, filthy communication out of our mouth. We could spend a lot of time on every one of those. Lie not one to another, seeing ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is uh, renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You know, I made this statement earlier, but the book of he, uh, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians are nearly identical books. They are both written by the same man and they uh, cover the same things. And Ephesians chapter four, verse 24 is the way he said this over in the book of Ephesians. And over there it says, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's the exact same thing he's saying right here, just putting different words. And uh, you can gain a lot of insight by comparing these two books. But this says you put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. This new man isn't talking about your brain up here. It's talking about your spirit. In the spirit, you got a brand new man. And you have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16, you have the mind of Christ in you. And you can walk in a supernatural wisdom. Again, so many Christians, see, don't understand Christ in us. And they just try and relate to God based on their own physical, natural ability and their own mental thinking. You can know God by the Spirit. You have been renewed in knowledge and you can know the ways of God from your heart better than you can through your head. But your heart is going to have to be set on God to be able to have this wisdom and knowledge work. This is why we're supposed to turn away from these things and mortify it and not be occupied with all the things of the world. It's not because God's mad at you or upset. God loves you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are, but wherever your heart is fixed determines what you're going to receive. And if it's fixed on the things of this world, then you'll only receive what this world has to offer which is heartache, sorrow, grief, bitterness, and all this kind of stuff. You get your heart fixed on the things of God. You start relating to God and you can, you've been renewed in knowledge in your spirit. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, that you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Not some things, all things. And some people think, well, I don't know all things. Here's my last test score to prove I don't know all things. All a test does is, is uh, evaluate your mental mind. But in your heart, you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. All things. You got this supernatural wisdom of God here, but you got to draw it out. Let me just say something real quick. In the name of Jesus, I'm not going to, I could spend the last, the next 20 minutes on this. I'm not going to do it, but you ought to get some teaching I've got. But this is why speaking in tongues is so important because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 14, 13, 14, 14, when I pray in tongues, my spirit prays. And then verse 13 says, when you pray in tongues, pray that you interpret. 
your spirit that has been renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, that has a special unction, an anointing from God. And you know, all things, you have the mind of Christ in your spirit. When you pray in tongues, it's this supernatural wisdom of God that you're praying out your mouth. And we were given a command that when you pray in tongues, pray that you interpret, ask God to show you what you are saying. And you can interpret your tongue and God can give you supernatural wisdom. If you're facing a decision, pray in tongues and say, God, I know that in my spirit, I've been renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created me. I've got the mind of Christ. I know all things. Now I'm going to pray in tongues and father, show me what I'm saying and give me wisdom. And God will supernaturally show you how to deal with your problem. But it's amazing to me how many Christians, they come up against problems and they say, oh God, speak to me and show me. And if they don't have a blinding flash of light or something like that, then they just lean under their own understanding. You ought to pray in tongues and ask God to give you wisdom. Again, I'm trying not to minister on this, but I could give you a hundred examples of where I've come into terrible situations and I've had to make decisions and I don't know what to do. And man, I just start praying in tongues and say, Father, I'm believing that you are giving me supernatural wisdom and God will just show things. He shows me things. He does things that just change my life. If you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues, when you pray in tongues, it's just like you've got this well, a, a reservoir of God's wisdom on the inside of you. But you could die sitting next to a well if you can't get that water out of the well. How do you get it out? You got to put a bucket down in there and start drawing that water out. When you speak in tongues, it's just like sticking a bucket down on the inside of your spirit and you're bringing it right out and this wisdom of God starts flowing out of you. Man, that's powerful. In verse 11, it says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. You know, basically this is again, talking about Christ in you. If we were supposed to live from our heart, the part of us that has been renewed in knowledge. And if we were relating to each other, spirit to spirit, Paul talked about this second Corinthians chapter five, verse 16. Now we don't know any man after the flesh. We knew Christ after the flesh, but we don't know any man after the flesh anymore because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Paul was living from his spirit. That's what he's talking about. And there isn't Jew or Gentile, barbarian, Scythic and bond or free. There isn't white or black. There isn't the gender problems. If we would live from our spirit and deal with other people based on who they are in Christ, based on the spirit, heart to heart. You wouldn't have race problems. You wouldn't have all of the prejudice problems. We wouldn't have all of these problems about the way people dress. We wouldn't, all of these things would leave. It's because people are operating out of the flesh, not realizing who they are in Christ. They aren't dealing with people based on Christ. Boy, that is powerful right there. And so he said in verse 12, wherefore are put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercy. It had just told you to mortify, put these things to death. Now it's telling you what you need to encourage. These are the things that you need to clothe yourself with. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, 
You know, in case you aren't paying attention, this is not the way that our world is going today. I mean, Muhammad Ali started it. I am the greatest. And we have people today that, I mean, they just promote themselves. They talk about as if they are God. That's not humbleness of mind. That's not meekness. Did you know just being kind to people is not popular today? Man, we've had people call in before that were coming to one of our meetings and they called and something about their reservation was wrong. And I was walking by one time and one of my secretaries was answering on the phone and she was sitting there crying. This guy was reaming her out for getting the uh, reservation wrong. And I asked what happened and she told me and I knew the guy. He was a friend of mine. And so I called him back up and I said, what is the deal? What is, why are you yelling at my secretary? I said, she made a mistake. I said, give her some grace. And he said, well, I wasn't mad. He says, you know, it's just the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Unless I sit there and exert myself and, and show my displeasure, I'm not going to get treated right. And I said, you can whitewash this any way you want to, but you just aren't kind. I said, you're mean. Now I made this guy apologize to her. It's just mean. But there are some of you, you know, I just was talking to one of our um, staff. I forget exactly who this was right now, but they were talking about their wife. It was one of the guys in my television department. His wife is a waitress. And she said that the waitresses hate Sundays and hate uh, Christians coming in because Christians are more demanding, more critical of the waitress than any other group. And they tip worse than anybody else. They said they'll put down a track and put a dollar in it. If you're going to put a dollar tip down, at least don't put a track with it and blame God for it. It shouldn't be that way. Christians ought to be the kindest people. They ought to be the people that if something's wrong, you are polite to the people instead of treat them like they're a slave. Some of you aren't clapping over that one. I know there's some, well, I just, you know, I deserve better than this. You know what? You are not the center of the universe. You ought to show other people some mercy. There ought to be kindness. You ought to put on bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, which means you don't have a short fuse. Amen. Amen. Verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. You know, I just had a meeting with some of my uh, people that run these Bible colleges and they were strife between them and Andrew Womack Ministries and CPC over in another country. And I, I just sitting there and said, look, can't we get along? I said, we're all on the same team. And you know what? We couldn't. They quit. But we ought to be long suffering. We ought to be able to get along with people. You know, there's things that people do that aggravate me, but honestly, I, I'm long suffering. I may not be forever suffering, but I'm long suffering. <laughs> and I can get along with nearly anybody. And there's people sitting right here that that's, 
You may say, well, I can too. But let me ask you how your wife, how your husband, how your co-workers would describe you. Would they describe you as long-suffering, kind, gentle? Do you have bowels of mercy? These are the way Christians should be described. This doesn't mean that you're a pushover. There is a time to stand up. Sometimes you have to fire people and sometimes you have to do things, but you can do it in a godly manner. You don't have to just blast the person. You don't have to make them out terrible. You know, this isn't as exciting as some of the things I preach. Most people don't like this kind of stuff. They would rather hear something else, but you need to hear just some of the basic stuff. You know, I was in a home one time staying with some people and this woman was asking me about, she was having problems with her son and she was asking me and I was trying to talk to her and help her with dealing with her son. And her son came down and she went upstairs and found out he hadn't made his bed. And she came down and she says, you make your bed. He says, you, and she just blasted him and let him have it. And I turned around and used that as an example. I said, you know what? I praise God, I made my bed, but what if I hadn't have made my bed? What if you walked up into my room and saw that I hadn't have made the bed and you talked to me the way you talked to your son? How do you think our relationship would go? And she, oh, I'd never talk to you that way. And I said, here's one of the problems that you've got. You will talk to your son who you're supposed to love much more than me. You'll talk to me and be nicer to me than you will your son. Somehow or another, we've got this unwritten rule that you just let your hair down around your own family and you'll treat them worse than you'll treat anybody else. I was raised with this. I was raised with a double standard. You know what? You can say and get by with things at home, but out in public, boy, you better behave. And that's wrong. My brother had it right when he got married He came home from work just a week or so after they'd been married and his wife had out all of the china and all of the crystal and all of the sterling silver. And he says, what is this? And she says, we got company coming over tonight. And he says, so why did you put this stuff out? And says, well, because we put our best for our guest. And he gathered all that stuff up and put it back. And he said, from now on, my family will eat on the china and the crystal and we'll give the other stuff to others. And you know what? He had a great relationship with his wife until she died. Praise God. But see, many of us, you you treat your mate worse than you would treat me. And you wonder why you're having problems. I was in a counseling session one time with a couple. And the man was just a jerk. And I told him, I said, you are a first class jerk. I said, how dare you treat your wife this way? And I just read him the right act. And you could tell that this guy got mad. Boy, he, he straightened up, but he controlled himself. And he says, well, you're probably right. <laughs> and he didn't lash out at me. And I said, that right there is one of your problems. What would have happened if your wife would have said to you what I just said to you? And man, I mean, it was obvious that he would have blasted her. He would have let her have it. But me, he treated me nice. You know what? That's not a godly character. You shouldn't shouldn't have a double standard. But if you are going to be a hypocrite, you ought to treat the people at home better than you treat anybody else. We need to get to where we operate in bowels of kindness and and loveness, forbearance, long-suffering with people. 
in verse um, 13, forgiving one another, uh, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Look over in Ephesians chapter four, verse 32. This is the exact same thing said in a uh, different book. Ephesians chapter four and verse 32. And he says, be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We need to, we need to operate in love towards others the way that we believe that God operates towards us. Most of us want great mercy towards us, but we are quick to judge and punish other people. Man, that's absolutely wrong. In verse uh, 15, or excuse me, verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity. That's God's kind of love, which is the bond of perfectness. You know, if you study these words out, this word bond is talking about like cement or mortar. It's like if you build a wall out of brick or stone, you have to put mortar in there to hold everything together. God's kind of love is what holds every other truth in the gospel together. Everything has to be bound together by love. It's, it's what holds everything together is what he's saying. And then in verse 15, look at this. It says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body and be ye thankful. You need to follow peace. You need to be a peacemaker. And yet some of us, man, we just love to stir the pot. We love to agitate people. We love to provoke things. There are some people that they just, they're going to provoke a situation every single time. That is contrary to these instructions. We are supposed to let the peace of God rule in their heart. You know, I haven't got time to go into the whole thing, but if you get my teaching on how to find, follow, and fulfill God's will, this is one of the first scriptures that the Lord ever showed me is Colossians 3.15. And I was trying to make a decision about what I should do. And specifically in my case, I was in my first year of college and the Lord told me to quit college and get out of school. And I was being paid $350 a month from the government if I stayed in school. My mother was pleased if I stayed in school. And I had a student deferment from the draft if I stayed in school. So there was a lot at stake if I quit school. But I felt like that's what God told me to do. And when I voiced it, boy, my mother, I was uh, 18 at the time, my mother hit the ceiling And I was threatened to be kicked out of my church for saying that God told me to quit school. God would never tell anybody to quit school. And I got so much flack. I had people criticize me just over and over and over and over. And anyway, it's a long story, but because of the pressure, I went ahead and stayed in school, but I was miserable. And finally, the Lord spoke to me and says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And I realized that I was in sin because I felt like God was leading me in one direction, but I wasn't following it because of all of the criticism and the potential problems. And so I, when I saw that, I said, I'm not going to be in sin tomorrow. I said, I'm going to make a decision tonight and I'm either going to stay in school or I'm going to get out of school, but I'm not going to continue in sin. I'm going to follow God, but I didn't know how to do it. And I spent about six hours studying the word and praying and saying, God, how do I make this decision? How do I discern what your will for me is? And God led me to this verse. And he said, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And that word rule there is the word that we get umpire from. 
like an official in a game. You know, in a, when they throw the baseball, the umpire doesn't sit there and think, well, I'm not sure. Let's do it over. <laughs> no, you just make a decision and right or wrong, you live with it. You've got to make a decision. You just have to decide. And the Lord spoke to me and he says, you need to let the peace of God be the thing that decides. And so with my imagination, I started thinking, all right, if I stay in school, I started imagining what it was going to be like. And I hated it. Since I'd gotten turned on to the Lord, I just hated, I couldn't, I'd had zero peace staying in university. But when I considered quitting school, I saw myself getting kicked out of my church forsaken by my family, criticized, uh, losing this money, being drafted and sent to Vietnam, potentially dying. I didn't feel total peace in that direction. (laughs) And so I was praying, God, how do I discern? And he, and here's what the Lord spoke to me. And I believe that this will work for any of us that if you had, he told me, he says, if you had to make a decision tonight, which I did, I'd said, I'm not going to be in sin tomorrow. I'm going to have a decision. He says, if you had to make a decision tonight and if this decision could cost you your life, which it could, I could have gone to Vietnam and died. He says, which decision would you make? Now, I didn't feel total peace in either direction, but I felt more peace about quitting school because that's what just was the desire of my heart. That's what I felt the most peace about. And so based on this verse, I let the peace of God rule in my heart. And I made a decision and I said, that's it. I'm quitting school. And, you know, because it was such a big decision, the next day I kind of tested it out. (laughs) I went to the three people who had criticized me the most and had just been violent towards me. I mean, saying really bad, nasty things to me. One of them was a teacher that I had in high school. And she was a friend of my mother. She was an old maid. 50, 60 years old, never been married, but she loved the Lord. She was a Christian and I respected her and she was one of my mother's best friends. And when I had mentioned to her that I'd thought of quitting school, boy, she got violent because she, of course, was my mother's friend, thought she was supporting my mother and she just read me the riot act and let me have it. And I went to her the next day and I walked in and I said, Miss Ellis, I said, God has spoken to me and I'm quitting school. And I just threw it out there. I didn't defend it. I didn't try and make it, you know, so that it it would be more acceptable to her. I just said it and braced on her response. And she looked at me and started crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she says, I'd be, I'd give anything to be in your shoes. She says, I'm, you know, I don't know how old at that time, 50, 60. And she says, I don't know for sure that I've ever done what God told me to do. You are so blessed to have God speak to you. And I left there like, "Mm, yes, amen. (laughs) And by the end of that day, I had enough confirmation that I never doubted again that that's what God called me to do. And I tell you, looking back at it, it was one of the greatest decisions I've ever made. I was only a couple of months old in the Lord. I don't know how in the world I came up with it, but God used this verse and it was one of the best things I ever did. And I'm telling you, this will work for any of you. You need to let the peace of God rule in your heart. There are some of you that are working in a job that you hate. And if you didn't have any restrictions, if you weren't afraid of failure, And if you weren't worried about losing your pension or 
working outside of the union or whatever, you know, you would sit there and do something different, but you've got these things that make you do something that you hate. You have zero peace about it. And you're in violation of this scripture. You aren't letting the peace of God rule in your heart. Either you need to get before the Lord and and say, God, change my heart. If this is what you want me to do, well, then give me a love for it. Show me and help me to do this with the right attitude. Or many of you are just in a dead end job where you hate going there. It's hurting you physically, emotionally and everything. And yet you're there because it's a good paying job or whatever. I tell you that that's covetousness. It's idolatry. You are putting, wanting these things above everything else. Life is too short for you to spend one minute doing something that is not your heart's desire. You ought to do what is giving you peace. You ought to follow the peace that's in your heart. You know, I'm out of time. I need to quit. We'll continue tonight. But let me just say this, that when I've ministered on this in the past, and then I've asked people who don't feel in their heart, they don't feel peace that what they're doing is the right thing. They know there's got to be something more than what they're doing. They do not have an assurance that they're on the right path. And I've asked people to stand and I've prayed for them out of a group like this. It's not unusual to have 80 or 90% of the people stand and say that they don't feel like that they've really found God's will for their life. They don't feel peace about it. That's terrible. That is absolutely terrible. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we need to start letting the peace of God rule in our heart. We need to set our affection on the things of God. We need to get so far into God that the world can't find us. It can't reach us. And you can do it. This is really practical stuff that I've talked about today. It's not the kind of stuff that makes people stand up and shout. But I tell you what, it'll change your life if you would just do this. If you would put the priority on the things of God, set your affection on there, mortify these other things. You have to turn, if you're going to be seeking things above, you cannot be seeking things below at the same time. God didn't give you eyes on both sides of your head. You can only look in one direction at a time. And if you're looking up, you can't be looking down. You need to get to where you're committed to God. You need to start operating in kindness and doing these things and quit using it as an excuse that this is the way everybody in your family's been. It's just the way your personality is. Well, if that's the way everybody in your family is, well, then everybody in your family is wrong. You need to start walking in love and joy and peace and all of these things and let the peace of God rule in your heart. Amen. Father, I pray for all of these people here this morning. And I'm just asking, Father, that you would take these words... And that, Father, you would speak to us through this, not in condemnation, that none of us would feel your rejection or your anger, but, Father, that we would feel your compassion, that you're wanting us to turn away from these things that are weights and sins, and they beset us and hold us back. Father, I'm praying that people would turn from these things and that they would turn to you and set their affection on the things that are above And Father, I pray especially that people would let the peace of God rule in their heart. That they would recognize it's sin to not operate in faith. If they don't have faith and confidence that what they're doing and the direction that they're going is the right thing, then Father, help people to to get before you and find out what your will is and do it. 
Father, take away the fear. Help people to be bold and just make a decision that, praise God, they will seek you. They will find your perfect will for their life. And Father, I thank you for that. I believe that the Holy Spirit is taking these words and using it to change people's hearts in the direction of our lives. Father, we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You know, again today, I want to give an opportunity for any person who doesn't know Jesus personally to be born again. You must be born again. Also, if you have been born again, if you are saved, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need that. And we've had how many people now? 187 people come forward to receive salvation in maybe what? 15, 20? Huh? Maybe 20 people or so receive salvation. So praise God. But we don't want anybody to leave without receiving this. You cannot lead your own life. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And like I was talking about, when you pray in tongues, your spirit that has the mind of Christ is praying and you can interpret it. If you don't have the ability to pray in tongues, man, you are at a huge disadvantage because you can't release this wisdom that's on the inside of you. So if you don't have this gift of speaking in tongues, if you aren't baptized in the Holy Spirit and or if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, we'd like to help you to receive. Is there anybody here that'd raise your hand and say, that's me and I want you to pray for me and I'd like to receive. Anybody, if that's you, just be bold and raise your hand. Anyone, here, here's a hand back here. It's hard for me to see with these lights. Here's another one over here. Praise God. You know, if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just come right down here and we want to pray with you and help you to receive. So just get up out of your seat and come forward. We aren't going to take anything from you. I'm going to give you a free book. I hadn't got anything for you to join. There's no ulterior motive. We're just wanting to pray with you and help you to receive. I tell you, you need this. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. amazing. We've had, counting this group right here, we've had 200 people come forward to receive the baptism in the last four services. Man, this is awesome. There was only 120 on the day of Pentecost that received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they turned the world right side up. This is awesome. This will change your life. Praise God. Anybody else want to come and receive? You know, today we've got this meeting about the Bible college back here. And I know that there's a lot of people that want to participate in that. So what I'm going to ask, if you don't mind, we've got people that are going to pray with you and minister to you. And plus, I've got a book that I want to give every one of you that will explain what this is all about. And we're going to believe God that today you're receiving this baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, salvation, whichever you need. 
But if you wouldn't mind, I'd like you to go with Mark. Where are you going to take them, Mark? I guess they're using your prayer room, aren't they? Have you got someplace else to take them? All right, Mark right here is going to take you, and they will give you this book and pray with you. And if you wouldn't mind, just follow him. And uh, he's a man right here with his Bible in the air. He's going to pray with you, and we believe every one of you is going to receive. Amen. You're welcome. Praise the Lord. Awesome. I'd like to request our prayer ministers to come down here and stand across the front. And these people are here to pray with you. I know that many of you today, maybe God spoke to you about something and there's some decisions that you need to make and you just need someone to pray with you. These are people that are turned on to the Lord, partners of ours, friends. Many of them are Bible college graduates. They are people that know how to pray with you. And if you need any ministry at all, please come forward and let us pray with you. This morning, I'm going to take off because they have these meetings and we need to allow people to get to them. Also, remember that we have CDs and DVDs of the four sessions already duplicated back there. Please take advantage of those. These are things that you need to hear over and over again. So if you need prayer, come forward right now. Let someone pray with you. And remember that our tonight's service starts at 6 o'clock. We're starting an hour early so that my crew can get through an hour early, tearing down and putting everything up. So remember, it's six o'clock tonight. Thanks for coming. God bless you. We believe that the word of God is bringing forth fruit in you in the name of Jesus. Amen.